And if they're at all happy where they are and what they've become, from selling out to doubling down, let's talk punk rock business and what happens when the two get all mixed up. Here is your host, Bill Florio. Yo, this is Bill Florio. Yo, this is MC Charlie Boswell. Hey, it's Dave Harrison. Today we got Nancy Burrell. She's written a book called I'm Not Holding Your Coat, and you should buy it on bazillionpoints.com, not Amazon. Well, you can buy it on Amazon, too, if that's where you can get it. You can buy it on Amazon. Wherever you get it, it's worth reading. But Especially if you already paid for that prime. Free shipping will even itself out with your ethical superiority. Anyway, Nancy's a high school teacher. And a college teacher. A lot of stuff. Yeah, she used to be like a teacher of teachers. She has a lot of side things going on. She's really passionate about being an advocate for kids. She teaches in a district that's like 50% kids that are underserved. And I just really love this. I've been, you know, working in education for a long time. So it's great to hear someone not at work uh, as inspirational and who's also like punk as punk as fuck. <laughs> yeah. No, I definitely think, you know, if John Ross Bowie had met her, maybe he would have stayed teaching, which probably wouldn't <laughs> have been a good thing. But I mean, I'm glad we have teachers <laughs> like Nancy. All right, let's roll the tape. All right, Nancy, we usually start this off with introduce yourself and tell everyone what you do for a living. Okay, my name is Nancy Burrell, and I am a high school English language arts teacher, national board certified teacher. I'm also an adjunct professor in the School of Education, undergraduate and graduate school of education at a local Boston college. And I am also a freelance writer. Three Ooh. jobs. <laughs> yeah. Right. ELA, right. I don't think that's just a New York thing. <laughs> yes. So how did you get into teaching in the first place? Well, I always wanted to be a teacher from the time that I was like five years old and I went to school. I used to come home and play school with the entire neighborhood. I was the teacher. I was teaching my little brother, who's four years younger than me, how to you know, read and write and do everything when I was, you know, as soon as I went to school. But my father wanted me to be a lawyer. So I went to school to be a paralegal and toiled in that field for far too long, miserable. And when I moved to Boston and, you know, kind of out of my father's grip, I went back to school so I could be a teacher. So that's, I, I'm, I'm a career changer. I didn't get to be a teacher until I was 36. So yeah, yeah, my daughter used to play school. She used to set up all her figures, you know, action figures and dolls and animals and everything in my classroom and play school. But she's studying to be an engineer. Yeah, well, good for her. Yeah, she's better off. Yeah, I mean, that's I used to sit in the back of cl my classroom, you know, bored to tears and say, wow, if I was teaching this lesson, this is what I would do, you know? And I don't, I don't think a lot of kids were doing that then, you know? <laughs> Did I say that I'm an engineer? Yes, my husband's an engineer, so I, I'm familiar with the, with the breed. Was your father a lawyer? <laughs> 
Wait, was his father a lawyer? No, her, was your father a lawyer? No, my father was a plumber. Oh, but he wanted you to be a lawyer. He wanted me to be a lawyer. Yeah, he was, uh, you know, first generation. His parents were Italian immigrants and um, he was a Marine and he was a plumber and he wanted us to achieve more than he did, like most parents. My grandfather said, you're going to be a plumber, a well-educated plumber. <laughs> it's like, thanks. Thanks, Grandpa. <laughs> you should have listened to him. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> so it sounds like you're teaching, you know, because you started later. Do you think you had a harder time? Like, it sounds like universally all teachers have a really trying experience in their first year. Do you feel like yours was harder or easier? Yeah, mine was really, mine was difficult. Not so much the actual teaching. I, I loved that part of it. But I was teaching in a public school and I had gone to private school. I grew up in an area that was fairly affluent, almost, you know, probably 98% white. And when I started teaching in Revere, that was not my student, that was not what my students look like. And my school is a high poverty school. And there were a lot of gangs at that time. You know, I had my first class, you know, I looked down <laughs> I was like, what? You know, there was a huge influx of Cambodians into my area. They were not welcomed or wanted by the majority white people that lived here. And their houses were burned down. Their property was damaged. There were a lot of fights every year for like the first five years that I worked. There'd be these huge football players versus Cambodian kid fights in the in the cafeteria where they actually they couldn't break them up. You know, they'd have to call the cops. So it's like, you know, really crazy. I lost a student to gun violence violence my first year. Yeah. You know, so that part was really, was really difficult. You know, like I thought, oh God, you know, am I going to, it's sad, you know, you lose a student is, is probably the worst thing that can happen to a teacher. So yeah, it was tough. I mean, there's a statistic of like, you know, a, a high rate of teachers don't make it to year three. Do you, do you think, do you know, do you have a feeling of why that is? Not just obviously like the school district you were in, but in just in general. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really tough job. And sometimes you don't have the necessary support that you need. Um, you're expected to triage a bunch of different things at once. So you've got to teach content, but you need to, you know, have classroom management. And then, you know, administrators have you doing all kinds of things. And you have, you know, all these kids in front of you. And if you have large class sizes, you know, it's hard to, <laughs> to keep everybody on top task. And if your building doesn't have a good, I was very lucky. My building had really good school culture. Teachers were supportive of every of each other. Um, there were the people there to help me out. Like at the time, I never had a mentor. Now they have mentor programs specifically for what you're saying, because teachers leave. The main reason teachers leave is because of a bad school culture, you know, and if school culture isn't good, then, you know, if teachers are miserable and the kids are miserable and, you know, they're not going to stick around, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough job and you don't make a lot of money doing it. And so, you know, you don't, really don't forget the maniac parents. Yes. And you have to deal with, 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 you know, parents. Charlie speaking from experience. That's right. Yeah. Being one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, you know, there's so much that, that you have to deal with. Well, getting back to, you know, what you just said, Nancy, I feel like punks pretty good at figuring stuff out as they go yeah. right there's like that ethic and you you book shows and things like that do you feel like that helped oh, in yeah, your early definitely. teaching years i you know i often say punk rock taught me how to be a better teacher you know i wrote an article for education week and did an ed talk on that very subject i believe that one of the reasons that i was able to connect so well to my students even though i looked nothing like that was because i remembered what it felt like to be a disenfranchised and marginalized kid you know who had no connection to her learning and I 
I was also kind of fearless because of what I experienced in Philadelphia was, you know, very violent and dangerous. And so, you know, there were times when I was doing gang outreach in my neighborhood and, you know, the gang kids would say to me, like, aren't you scared? And I said, you know, I had bombs thrown at me, you know, like, no, I'm not scared, you know, because I was, you know, so it made me, um, you know, it, it made me a little more maybe fearless, as I said, and accepting and understanding. And um, I recently had a kid, you know, he's like 40 now who was in my first class. And uh, I posted an old punk rock picture of me. And he was like, I knew there was something about you. You know, I put this on on Facebook. He said, because even though, you know, you were my teacher, I could look in your eyes and tell that you were from the streets. (laughs) So, and I like love that because even though I wasn't from the streets, you know, I I was on the streets, you know, um, in the punk rock times, you know, and, and kids recognize that, you know, they, they, they know when somebody's bullshitting them or not authentic and stuff. So they can tell, they can tell. And this kid definitely did. And so, you know, that's always, I always want to be able to connect with my kids in some way or another. And it's, you know, it's hard when now, you know, I'm almost 62 years old, you know, so it's, it's becoming, and I do do, you know, none of my kids look like me, most of them from many different countries. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, as far as, um, as you know, being different ethnic and racial backgrounds. It seems like Nancy, that's, that's kind of like, you know, it, it's more of just staying in practice and being able to connect with that, that lost soul element. I mean, I, I, I don't regret, obviously I'm so proud of being part of, you know, having punk rock be a part of my youth, but like at the same time, everyone, it seems like who gets into punk rock is looking for something. So if you can tap into that, that seems like that's really, you know, and, and they feel like you understand that, then you're going to be much better off than that straight laced teacher who doesn't have any knowledge of that whatsoever or doesn't understand because they only took that completely linear path through life. Yes, exactly. I, I think it definitely, it definitely made me the teacher that I am today. You know, I have, you know, a bunch of degrees and countless hours of professional development and everything. But really, when it comes down to it, the reason that I think that I'm successful is because of punk rock. It really, you know, there's no doubt in my mind. <laughs> I, I have a quote from one of your students that fits in that perfectly. And they oh, said, uh, you know, all the kids are crossing the American Legion Legion Highway illegally, and then we look down the street. We see Nancy going the other way, crossing it. Yeah, well. <laughs> so I think I think I think they they all know, like you know, there's something special there. Yeah, yep, that sounds about right. So it seems like it was pretty pretty obvious from from reading your book that you were you were still a kid, obviously, in a lot of the things that you're talking about in the book. But at the same time, you seemed like the adult in the room a lot of times. You know, like you would take on the responsibility of of dealing with whether it was booking shows or or just being the responsible one in the room when when all hell was breaking loose in the middle of a, of a pit or whatever. Do you feel like that was kind of, you know, a foreshadowing of you teaching or was that always kind of what drew you to, you know, what drew you to, to eventually want to be a teacher in the first place? Yeah, no, I definitely think that the fact that my father was a Marine and kind of raised us in that kind of way to be prepared for anything really helped me in the punk rock scene. My father, even though I, you know, I grew up in a, in a nice suburb, you know, my father taught us how to be street smart and, and aware of our surroundings and to recognize a con man. And, you know, like, you know, he, he, he would say, you know, I didn't raise any fools, you know, 
know, and we didn't suffer fools either, you know. So I do think that 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 really that helped, you know. But in the punk rock scene, you know, I was maybe like a year or two older than the kids that I was hanging around with. So I think even just that year or two that helped as well. But yeah, I was always kind of a take charge person, you know. That's just my personality. That's who I am, you know. <laughs> I like to, you know. Are you a Pat Pat Conroy fan? Um, yeah, I, I you know I read. Pat Conroy, but yeah, I'm not, not a huge fan, but yeah. This made me think of the Marine dad part. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, yeah. Yeah. That part I can, I can definitely relate to, you know, um, it's so funny. The first time I, I saw, um, the movie where the guys, you know, that the Marine, I would tell me the name of it. You guys, you know, it. You uh, know? Big, great Santini, It'd be great Santini. You know, I was like, I, I saw that when I was a punk with my boyfriend, Brian in the theater. And I was like bawling through the whole thing. And he's like, you know, like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, Jesus Christ, that's my father. You know, <laughs> <laughs> how, how about the water is wide? Did you read that? No, I didn't. I oh, didn't. you should read, you yeah. should read that. Cause that's yeah. about his first year of teaching. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah, no, I don't need to have the you know further traumatized. Yeah, um, <laughs> no, it might make you feel better. It seemed like he had it even worse than you did. <laughs> yeah, no, I I definitely believe that. Yeah, I definitely believe that 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 is the case. <laughs> so yeah, my dad was pretty good. Like when you when I you know if you, you read the book, you know like when I needed him there for me one hundred percent, and that was cool. You know. So so you live in Revere and you, you teach in Revere. Do do most of the teach, teachers live there? No, they don't. Some do. You know, maybe. I know and, exactly. Maybe like 20 30 percent of them live in revere you know it used to be more but now they come in i mean we have teachers that are from rhode island and maine that come in yeah so from all over the place you know like i said i talked to one of your students and you know he seemed to think that was important you know as far as like you're actually part of the community you know they see uh, they see you at the supermarket and things like that yeah well, um, i used to you know i don't i never got a driver's license you know so i used to walk home and the you know the way to my house you have to go there's a street that you could go down called shirley Ave, and this street is notorious right when i moved to revere in 1989 people were like never go to shirley Ave. you know you'll hear you know gunshots and this and that yeah that's where all the gang activity you know took place and so for the first like six years that i lived in revere I never walk down Shirley Ave, you know, because everybody had me so fearful of it. Well, when I started walking home from school with my students, you know, a good percentage of them lived on Shirley Ave. And they would get so excited when they would see me walking down the street and they, you know, they'd run over with their baby brothers and sisters or their new basketball or parents or, you know, they'd be dragging me into the Cambodian restaurant to have like Cambodian food. And yeah, I think it made a huge difference for them to see their teacher in their in their neighborhood, you know? And so I made a point of always walking down Shirley Ave and, and you know, no matter where, you know, if I was even just going to the bank, you know, I'd go that way, you know, so that I would run into my kids and, you know, they come running out of their houses and stuff. So yeah, I do think it was important. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And in, in, in New York, we see that because like in New York City, the high school process is a huge thing. It's like even harder than the college process of applying to schools and whatnot. And you have a lot of the teachers, they uh, grew up in the suburbs, went to school in the suburbs, and they live in the suburbs. And so then, you know, when you graduate, you know, junior high school, elementary school, you go to whatever the junior high school is. And then after you graduate that, you go to the local high school, everybody goes there. So they're really not tuned to that. And they're not, you know, informing the kids about what they need to do because they're not experiencing themselves with themselves or their children. Right. Yeah. Right. Do you think like say teaching in Boston would even be more challenging or less because of, you know, where you're at? Yeah. It would depend on the school. There's some neighborhoods in Boston that, that are challenging. I, I would imagine. I do, think if you're a good teacher and you make connections with students and you 
build relationships, you teach anywhere. I want to move back to Philadelphia so bad. And I keep telling my husband, I want to move back. And if I do, you know, I'm going to retire, but I wouldn't mind, you know, teaching something at a high school in Philadelphia, you know, and I, and I think, you know, now Philadelphia schools are tough, you know, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but I would like to think that my experience would, would, you know, prepare me for, for that. You know, I would like to, you know, maybe teach tutor or, or, you know, something like that. That'd be a good full circle. Is there, is there still a little bit of scene pride there too? Like you want to teach like, kind of like how you repped back in the day, Philly, like you want to go back and teach there too, just to prove <laughs> like, you know, the, the Philly versus Boston kind of uh, conversation. There? Yeah, maybe. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, there's something about it, you know, I, there's just something about Philadelphia that gets in your blood, you know, and, you know, for many years, I love Boston. Do not get me wrong. I absolutely love Boston. Boston has been incredible to me, you know, but man, I, I miss, I miss Philadelphia, you know, and it's a lot cheaper to live in Philadelphia and it's a lot warmer to live in Philadelphia, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? which my husband doesn't believe. He doesn't think the temperature is that big of a difference. Oh, it's yeah, a big difference. It's a huge, yeah. huge difference. Yeah. So, <laughs> well, he's used to it. Well, yeah. Al's, re- Al's retired now, right? Like that wouldn't be a big yeah, deal. Uh, yeah. Well, he was, yeah, he was kind of forced into retirement disability because he had, he's had nine backs surgeries. He has a really bad back. He w- he was, he would have been one of those kind of guys who worked till he dropped, you know? Um, and so he's, you know, he's really sad about the fact that they forced him out, you know, because he was disabled, but yeah, he used to always say he couldn't leave the sports teams, you know, but now, <laughs> you know, it's not like we go to the games, you can still watch them on TV and stuff. So I did that, out. you know, yeah. just, just, I mean, I, I was, I'm, I was a New Yorker for most of my life and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky. And I still, I mean, in this day and age, you, you buy the packages for everything. I watch yeah. every team. I watch every game and I Dave, want to watch. It's no big deal. Traitor. <laughs> <laughs> hold on, hold on. Couple of things. I was told Cambodians are the masters of donut making. Are the donuts in Revere better than other parts of Boston? And do you think that Cambodians immigrated there because there was a ready donut? Um, I can tell you that there, I don't know that there are any Cambodian uh, donut shops, but I do have a lot of former students who've moved um, down south and Florida, Texas and other places and opened up donut shop. Like I, 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 you know, we don't have any Cambodian donut shops here. I think it's very expensive to start a business here. So maybe, you know, they felt there were more opportunity in other places, but I do, I have a lot of students who, who own donut, donut shops, but. So you, you don't have any donut shop, but you export donut shops. There's someone training. I mean, we have Dunkin' Donuts, Uh, you know, if you, you know, Dunkin' Donuts. I think that's any reason to open up a donut shop to get a donut. That's not stale. I agree. Yeah, yeah. No, don't, um, Dunkin' Donuts is huge here. People, you know, we literally have Dunkin' Donuts like on both sides of the streets in some places. <laughs> you know, we had a tornado go down the main street and I, there was a woman on TV afterwards and she was standing in front of a Dunkin' Donuts sign and she's like, I'm not sure if this is from the Dunkin' Donuts right here or the one across the street. And I was like, I was like, that is the most revere reaction to a tornado that you have ever heard (laughs) so but i think they came they came here for a couple of reasons one was that a church sponsor a church in our area sponsored them to come here um you know after their you know we bombed their country and uh so you know that was one reason and um lowell massachusetts is a big area where a lot of cambodians settled as well you know that now they've they've you know they're they're in a much smaller number now we have more students from other countries than Cambodia. Cambodian numbers are small now, but when I first started, they were, it was, you know, they were, they were the number one immigrant. I bet you're going to after mass breakfast, they got donuts there. (laughs) 
don't know. <laughs> obsessed with the donuts. <laughs> oh no. Uh, the second thing is, wait. what about those problems with the with the Boston high schools? You were saying because I heard that Boston Latin only got one five on the chemistry AP. I don't believe that. That's what I heard. <laughs> Well, I, 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 yeah, and I can tell I you in New York, we get a lot more than one five on the chemistry AP. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't believe that for a minute. No, not a, not a chance. Yeah. yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Wait, hold on. I want to go back. You mentioned having bombs thrown at you. I, I don't want to skip over that. Could, yeah, could, yeah. Can we explain that comment? So, you know, when when um, in, in Philadelphia, you know, venues came and went, you know. And so David Carroll, who ran the hot club, which was the premier punk club in uh, Philadelphia, when his club, when that club closed, he started doing shows in a neighborhood of Boston called uh, a neighborhood of Philadelphia called Kensington. And it was a a poor white neighborhood and they didn't want punks in their midst. (laughs) So the first time we went there, um, the first, I had gone there to see, you know, like Susie and the Banshees played there. I think the fall played there. A couple of local bands played there. There were no issues, but I went there to see SOA and black flag. And, you know, I tell the story in my book, you know, the the locals set up the DC punks who kind of didn't know what was going on. You know, like we tried to warn them, you know, we did. We tried to warn them that, you know, this was a dangerous place to be careful, but they didn't listen. And so, uh, you know, there was a huge, huge riot. And and the um, the DC kids suffered some very, very serious injuries from stitches to broken bones, concussions, like, you know, some some pretty, you know, lead pipes, bats to the head, you know, the whole neighborhood out after them and stuff. And then, um, you know, a year later, I was stupid enough to go back to see the dead Kennedys. And it was really hot. It was July afternoon. And um, everybody, you know, the punks were all milling around outside. And I was sitting on this on a stoop with my little brother. And I saw a car pull up with like four guys in it slow. And my street smart alerted me enough. I thought they were going to do a drive by shooting, you know. So my brother was in the middle of a sentence. I just grabbed his hand and said, run. And we just went running down the street. And they threw a homemade bomb at us with a stick of dynamite and ball bearings and BBs in it. And so like, you know, you heard this tremendous explosion and people screaming and people had, you know, one girl got her heel blown up and people had ball bearings and BBs embedded in their arms and their legs. And, you know, so it's pretty scary. It's like a Dick Cheney hunting trip. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> Wait, is it Char- Charlie? I remember uh, we had a bombing... Uh, from the Palace Hotel. Do you remember that? In front of Seavies? There was this guy, he was like the skinhead guy. He was really scary looking. And he, he always had like no shirt on. And it was like three head tattoo on his chest. But nobody wanted to get close enough to look at it. And I remember Charlie went up and asked him, do you remember that guy? I remember the guy. Yeah, but what happened? Because I remember you went up to him and you were like, what's that on your chest? And he was like, it was Goodfellas. That's right. Yeah. yeah no. <laughs> but but this, I don't know, a few weeks later, we were out in front of Seabees and there was, a you know, this Palace Hotel across here. It was like a homeless uh, hotel and uh, someone dumped. It yeah, was upstairs. Yeah, it was upstairs. upstairs. And, and it's all of a sudden, like, a bucket of piss flew out the window and hit that guy. Oh. And, like, everyone just went running because <laughs> they didn't want to see him laughing at him. <laughs> So that's the only bombing I remember. But I like that he had the Goodfellas tattoo. It was pretty cool. All right. Notice I was the only one. Brave I know. Enough that's what I was ask. saying. Like that, I, I feel like Charlie, you're good at you're good at doing that on the street stuff. <laughs> 
Uh, I feel like teachers are, have like highly effective bullshit detectors. Do you think yours is better? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mine, mine was always pretty good to start with, you know. And uh, you know, I think sometimes my kids underestimate me because I'm old now, you know. And uh, you know, I'll just, I'll, you know, privately usually I'll just call them out and be like, "Come on, you know, you think you're not gonna believe that, you know?" So um, yeah, I think that we um, we definitely do. And you know, there's, it, it, you know, I. I often look at, you know, some some politicians that shall remain nameless who, you know, are, are such tremendous conmen. And I'm like, how can people not see that? You know, but like I, you know, that's I think that's the first time in my life when I realized that not everybody's bullshit detector is as in tune as mine is, you know. Um, so, yeah, we definitely you just get used to it. You know, when someone's lying to you and, you know, you can you can tell. So we have a we have, kids a, are better we have an that? ongoing um kind of theme within people that have a Massachusetts uh, connection that there's some relation to Charlie Baker, who apparently, speaking of politicians, is an old punk guy. Has he ever said anything about SSD control or anything like that? Is he, has, has, uh, has he ever mentioned being a fan? That's the first time I've ever heard that. I didn't, I didn't know that he was an old punk guy. No, yeah. I know. Well, there was a famous, so there was a, there was a photo that circulated around Christmas and obviously this isn't punk in the sense that we know it, but apparently he got a bunch of Blink-182 albums on vinyl for, for Christmas. But um, we had, um, we had Clint Conley from Mission to Burma on and he told us that Charlie Baker, he met him once uh, because Clint's a journalist now and, and met him and started talking to him about Mission to Burma. Wow. No, I didn't. I did not. Was not aware. <laughs> pretty, pretty surprising to us too. Another thing I talked to your student about was he said that you're really good in like instilling confidence in kids. Um, we, we, most of our guests seem to like lack confidence. Uh, do you feel like coaching kids is very different than coaching adults? Um, I don't know. I think I, I kind of can do both. Um, you know, I think as a teacher, you can kind of see a talent in a kid or a special skill that they don't. Certainly with the student that you talk to, you know, I knew that kid was smart, but he didn't do anything in my class, you know. But every once in a while, I would ask, you know, a really difficult question and, you know, do, do the teacher thing, you know, like uh, no one would answer. And I'd say, all right, if anybody answers this, I'll give you 10 points on the test. And he would like lift his head up and give me like the most profound answer, you know. So I knew he was really smart, um, but I don't think he, you know, because he came from a different country and hadn't been here that long. I don't think he had a lot of confidence, you know, so um, that became my job to help him, you know, find that. And and with every kid, they have some kind of a talent or skill. And, and you know, I think that's a teacher's job is to help them recognize it and, and bring it up. But I've, I've also done that with friends and, and, uh, and, and adults as well. Like I, you know, maybe when I retire, I, I will be like, if it wasn't such a cheesy title, a life coach, you know, like they, I got to change. I got to come up with a new title. Well, because, no, I, was thinking, I was thinking you can come on our show and, and we could bring some of these people back and you can give them a pep talk. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, people have told me they're like, well, you know, you know, even my nephew recently, he said to me, he was like, you know, Aunt Nan, you're really good at motivating people. And I was like, really? <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you think? And uh, so, um, yeah, I, you know, I, I would, I would like to do something like that in my life. Nate. My, my next act. Well, I personally love when you yell at Al through Instagram about how no one understands his posts. <laughs> you know, so Al is, you know, he was never diagnosed, but I would say that Al definitely has a lot of characteristics textbook uh, for Asperger's. And so he doesn't get social cues and he 
thinks things are hysterically funny that no one else does. And uh, <laughs> it's like, that's why I, hang I, I was going to say, you're describing me. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, funny because yeah, I, like I feel like that's an engineer thing too, though. It is an engineer thing. It is an engineer. <laughs> it is an engineer. It absolutely is. And so, you know, like sometimes he'll just, oh God, like people, you know, my more on my Facebook than on my Instagram, you know, I blow Al up because he gives me so much material. You know, my friends love it. You know, they think it's, and he's like, oh, I'm glad you're having such a good laugh at my expense. You know, I'm like, well, stop, <laughs> stop giving me so much material, you know, and I'll just tell you guys a quick story. So I, I told you I never got a driver's license. So Al picks me up after school every day. So one day he picks me up and our dog, Flippy the Beagle, is, you know, on the passenger side and Al is on the phone with a doctor. So I open the door. I throw my bag in and I realize I forget I forgot something, right? So I say to Al, I gotta run back inside. So I close the door, I run back inside, get what I need, come back outside. Al's gone. I'm like, where is he? You know, like he's nowhere to be seen. So I'm standing there like completely confused. And all of a sudden he like, you know, like 10 minutes later comes bombing around the corner. He's like, oh my God. He's like, I got halfway home and looked over and you weren't there. And, <laughs> and he's like, I thought you fell out of the car and I ran you over. You know, like he's just in his own. <laughs> own little world you know and i was like are you kidding me like help <laughs> you know <laughs> i told that i tell that story on its anniversary every year my friends are like that's my favorite alberal story or you know this one's my favorite alberal story but yeah he gives me a lot of there's always that tour story where the, the one band member gets left at the rest stop for half a day <laughs> oh that always happens yeah. <laughs> Well, I was just going to say, I just, yeah, I, I love the back and forth that you two have. And it's, it's definitely funny because I would imagine in your relationship, you know, everyone's always like, oh, Al's the big scary guy, but you're probably the one that I would be more afraid of. And, and I would say that's, that's, that's good insight on your part. <laughs> <laughs> I want, I want to talk a little bit more about the student I talked to because the story, like, almost it almost brought me to tears a little bit. Yeah. Um, so, like you said, you, you saw him in the class and you, I, you, you sought him out. I mean, like, so, I mean, is there a process there? Was he special or are there a lot of people like that? There, you know, there are a lot of kids like that. And with Rizudin, I was, you know, teachers have a million side hustles. And one of my side hustles was that I was the site manager for the soccer team. You know, I would pay the refs and make sure no fights broke out. And things like that. And Mizudin played soccer and I would see him running up and down the field and his stride, unbelievable. He could get up and down a field in like 11 strides, you know, where everybody else would take like 36, you know? And so when his grades started to tank in my class, I pulled him aside after school and I said, you know, dude, like, what's your problem? Because you're obviously really smart, but you don't do shit in my class. And, um, you're failing. So like, what are we going to do? And that's when he told me that he was a, a survivor of genocide from Bosnia. He was six years old when war broke out in his country. And because he was Muslim, he was targeted for ethnic cleansing by Slobodan Milosevic. Now, I don't even know where Bosnia is because when I was in school, Bosnia was Yugoslavia, you know? So like, I'm like, what? And he's telling me this like horrible story of like leaving his home and, you know, waiting for pallets of food to drop from the U.N 
women in fields and his sister had her leg blown up by a bomb and the pain was so bad she pulled out all her hair and, and was completely bald and the family gave her whiskey and wrapped it in bed sheets and his uncle was killed by snipers and they had to bury him behind sheets and by candlelight and they played soccer only at night by by taking a sponge and wrapping it up in duct tape to create a ball like I was like are you kidding me like this kid had had overcome so much adversity to be where he was you know he didn't when he came to this country he came here because the European doctors wanted to amputate his sister's leg and they told him that they they told the family that there was only one doctor who could save her leg and he worked at Boston City Hospital and so the Red Cross paid for them to come over here from ref, you know refugee status and he only knew two words of English okay and bye and he didn't even know what those meant you know so he is in ELL classes for eighth and uh, seventh and eighth grade ninth grade and then he trans you know he transitions into regular classes and that's when I get him you know so then he tells me that he failed all his classes last year and the only reason he's in school right now and the only reason he went to summer school to make up his classes is because he wanted to play soccer and he was going to drop out like his older brother did to get a job to help support his family because he had four brothers and sisters too. And I said, well, you're absolutely not dropping out. Furthermore, you're going to run track because I saw you run and I think you're fast and I think you can get a scholarship. And he, he you know, he thought track was cross country because that's the same season as soccer. He's like, I'm not running through the woods. And I'm like, no, you'll be a sprinter, you know? <laughs> and so you know, I was pretty sure I knew that he was a fast runner. And I went down to the coach of uh, of track, who was like this older man who I never really talked to that much. You know, he's kind of crotchety. And I said, you know, excuse me, Coach Pavey, you know, I had this Bosnian kid who I think is really fast. He was like, you know anything about track, Burrell? And I said, well, no, but I know if somebody can run fast. And he's like, all right, bring him down to the gym. So I bring the kid down to the gym. He doesn't even have like the road, right shoes on. You know, he's got like moccasins or something on, you know. And I leave him there and I go to teach credit recovery, another side hustle. And the kid comes back like an hour later and he's like, oh my God, you know, I smoked everybody, you know, I smoked <laughs> two juniors and seniors and I threw the shot put and almost broke the school record. And I did, you did the high jump and almost broke the school record, you know? I was like, oh, that's great. You know? And then about another hour, Pavey comes down and he's like, oh my God, Burrell, where did you find this kid? I've been coaching 35 years. I've never seen a kid this fast, you know? So he's like, please tell me he's eligible for track, you know? We call the kids grades up. He's got all F, you know, so he's not eligible to run indoor track. So we, you know, I call the kid in the next day. So kid's all excited. And I'm like, listen, dude, you got to listen to me like you never listened to any adult before in your life. You get your grades up, you run spring track, your whole life can change. You could go to college on a scholarship. You could help your family way more than working at a gas station, you know? Now, I've had that conversation with kids many times, you know? Uh, some listen, some don't. This kid listened. By his senior year, he was on a roll. He was taking AP classes, and he became a state and New England champion and was ranked sixth in the nation. And then I didn't know what to do with him because, you know, he was really smart, but he didn't go to school from first to seventh grade, you know? So he was missing a lot because of the war, you know? And he was missing a lot of fundamental, you know, building blocks of learning. So especially in math. And so I asked my director at the time, I was like, what should we do with Zoom? Because that's what we call them. And he's like, what about prep school? What about prep school? So the only prep school I knew was Phillips Andover because my nieces 
went there. I didn't quite realize it was the most prestigious prep school in the world, you know, and that like, you know, both John Bush, you know, John Kennedy uh, Jr. went there, you know, George Bush, both George Bushes and all these people, you know, but we just applied and he got in, he got in and, and, um, they were going to kick him out his first, you know, they gave him a full scholarship. It was like $57,000 a year. They did his laundry. They bought his uniforms (laughs) and yeah, he, he, you know, he did really well and they were going to kick him out his first month in because his math skills were so bad, you know? And, and they, you know, they called me up and I was like, listen, you knew, you know, because on, or, on uh, orientation day, they met, they talked about how the, the president of the school talked about how his letter was the, one of the greatest she ever, his application was one of the greatest that she's ever read, you know? And I was like, you said you wanted kids from all four corners of the world. You knew exactly what you were getting with this kid. If you kick him out of here, like I will go to every newspaper. I will like, you know, blow it. <laughs> and um, and they're like, all right, all right, calm down. And I'm like, whatever. And they got him his own private teacher, his own private math teacher. And and that person, you know, they helped him. And he, you know, he was smart. He worked really hard. And so, you know, he did great there, broke a lot, you know, broke a lot of school records there, got a full scholarship to Wheaton College in Wheaton, Mass, and became a five-time All-American, two-time NCAA champion, won the NCAA Inspiration Award. And, um, you know, he was in the paper a lot. And um, my cousin worked for the federal government and he was like, you know, does this kid speak Bosnian? I said, yeah. He said, well, we need people like that. And so he did an internship down there his junior year and then got a, got offered a full-time job and he's been down there ever since, you know, living the dream. And, you know, then a funny side note is he's like, Beryl, you know, you help me with everything. Find me my wife. You know, he's, he's a t- tall, good look, you know, <laughs> really tall, good looking kid, you know, and he, and, you know, he, he dated a lot, but, you know, either I didn't like the girl or he didn't like the ones I liked, you know, like, cause, and, and, and um, I knew there was a Bosnian girl that had graduated a few years before him. And um, he was a little older because of the war. And she was a little, you know, she started school a little younger because she left as soon she was from Sarajevo. So she left right away, went to Germany and then came here. So I fixed them up on a date and ignorant American. What I didn't realize is that she is a Bosnian Serb, which was the enemy during his war. So his parents were really angry with me that, you know, I saw the father father and mother one night at the ice cream place down the street and you know I'm saying hi to him and they're like running away from me and, and finally I caught up to them and I was like you know the father looked at me with hate in his eyes and he was like you know you could have set my son up with a black girl Hispanic girl Japanese girl you know you set my son up with a Boston serve you know and I felt really bad but she is the you know the most awesome young lady that you'd ever want to meet it worked and, out though it, and worked, it worked out, out. yeah right. you know it, it worked <laughs> out so you know that that's that's good but like I didn't you know I was kind of stupid. So yeah, so he's a great kid and is probably like the closest thing, you know, that we, you know, we have to a son. And, you know, when they're, when they're in town, they have a, they have a baby now and, you know, they always stop and visit um, here with me and Al and, you know, we uh, go out to eat when there's not COVID and, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're great people. And, um, you know, that's one thing about teaching is you, you do meet a lot of lifelong friends. The other part of the story he told me is that you, you know, you went over to his house and then you were kind of like telling his parents what they need to do but you, he had to be the interpreter so you were talk, talking all the stuff about him and then making him tell his parents yeah yeah and it was hard because you know they didn't think he was taking school seriously you know and so they didn't figure if he wasn't going to take school seriously then they figured he should jo- drop out and get a job and I was like trying to explain to them you know why he would be way more valuable to them you know with an education you know and so you know I convinced them so <laughs> 
Nancy, how do other teachers replicate this? Um, you know, if you, <laughs> you, if you, you know, I, they are replicating it is what I'm, I'm going to tell you is like, if you were at my school, like these stories, like I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of teachers that do, that, that do similar things, you know? Um, I think that that's just part of who teachers are. You know, most teachers, you know, it's, sometimes the teachers you hear about are the ones that, you know, are, are kind of miserable and maybe they don't, they don't like their job or whatever. But most, um, most teachers, Teachers are doing everything they can to, to help their their students succeed, you know, and so it, it's it's a pretty common thing, you know. It it really is. Well, to I'm that end, Nancy, I mean, you've won a lot of awards for teaching. Do you feel like it's kind of one of those situations where you win one and then you're on the short list for everything, or you know, how does that happen? How do you, how do teachers get these types of awards? And 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 you know, do you get on a path for that, or is it just kind of uh, you know you're nominated? How does that work? Yeah, well, sometimes it's an administrator who nominates you. So, like my superintendent nominated me for a Massachusetts teacher of the year. I was a finalist twice, but I, you know, I was a bride, you know, I was the bridesmaid twice, never a bride. Um, Rizudin actually nominated me for the Kennedy Center Inspirational Teacher Award. He, you know, wrote a 500 word essay um, and sent it in. And then I got this thing saying I was a finalist. It was like a $10,000 award too. And he never told me. And then I called him up on the phone and I was like, dude, what, what is this? You know? <laughs> and he's like, oh, I forgot to tell you, you know, I wrote this essay, <laughs> you know, and, and I was like, send me the, he goes, I was a finalist, you know, and I said, send me the essay. And so, you know, a lot of times they tell kids when you're writing an essay, you know, to give a quote, you know, from like a famous person. And then you like, you know, you explain it or whatever. Well, he used a quote that I used to say to him whenever he was scared or worried about anything, you know, from track to taking a test or whatever. I used to say to him, like, you survived a war. This is a piece of cake. And so <laughs> that's what he used as the theme that ran through this 500 word essay. And so, you know, I read the essay and he was a good writer. He was a really good writer. I kind of knew that I won. You know, I was like, wow, I think I'm going <laughs> to win this thing, you know, because the essay was so good. And then sure enough, I did. So yeah. What'd you so spend I, the money on? So I split it with him and, um, I think I put my share on, on my house and I don't know what he did with his share. You know? So, but I, but I, you know, I thought that was the right thing to do since he, you know, he nominated for it. So we, we had one of those awards come around here. They gave me, I nominated Max Hedrum this year. <laughs> Wait, is Max Headroom a teacher? Yeah, you mentioned this before. No, because it's a remote oh, learning. You know, okay. this. That's a dated reference, Charlie. No one's going to get that. <laughs> I just want to say uh, both Beverly Cleary and Larry McMurdy passed away today. Oh, Beverly Cleary did too? Yeah. So just, it's ironic we're interviewing you. Yeah, I didn't know that. I bet fudge. Anyway, say. sorry, I didn't mean to bum anyone out. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks, thanks, Bill. So. <laughs> <laughs> So you've been you've been in in Massachusetts for quite a while. Do you still feel like a Philadelphian in Massachusetts, or have you embraced being a resident of Massachusetts? I don't want to say a, a Bostonian because you're outside of Boston, but it seems like that's probably a pretty appropriate way to say it. Yeah, I would say when I'm around Bostonians, I'm a Philadelphian. But when my Philadelphian friends and relatives come visit me, I'm a Boston. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah, you don't have the A accent, so you don't. You definitely don't have the Boston accent. Yeah, I have this like crazy hybrid of Philadelphia and, and Boston that voice recognition cannot decipher. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, no, no uh, Siri for you. <laughs> yeah, no, it wouldn't work. I'm going to stop the conversation for one second and tell you, if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. 
Want to help out with some gas money to get us the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com. Now let's get back to the show. Do you think you still would have gotten into teaching if if you had convinced Al to move to Philly instead of vice versa? Yeah, you know, I, I think I might have because I, you know, it was just always something that I felt that I wanted to do, like sort of almost like a calling, if that's, you know, not too cheesy. I think I might have gone back to school in Philly and 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 done it too. Or maybe I would have become a promoter or something. I don't know. That that always promoting always stressed me out. Mm-hmm. So I didn't real I didn't really enjoy it that much. And I but I definitely didn't like, you know, working in a law firm, you know, so I probably wouldn't have stayed there. But yeah, maybe. Uh, you know, I think I think probably I would have probably still become a teacher. So it's interesting to me as well that you I, I saw you shared a couple of stories on your Instagram as well about selling off the T-shirt that you got offered a fortune for. I think it was the minor threat T-shirt and like things like that. Like so you wrote a book that's obviously very nostalgic and it's a look at your life growing up. But it seems like you kept a lot of things from back in the day. But do you not have an issue getting rid of that stuff now? Or has your view towards the actual physical products of things that you've kept changed? over the years? Yeah, I never I never was much of a collector, you know, even with records or anything like that. I was never much of a collector. And, you know, with the Minor Threat shirt at the time that, you know, I just, I found that in a drawer and it was pristine because I had never worn it. And I took a picture of it and I put it up on, I think it was old school hardcore kids Facebook page. And all these people started offering money for it. And at the time I wanted to take my kids, my students to New York for the first time. Like I, you know, I had never done a field trip to New York and I really wanted to do it. And so when the guy offered me $800, I was like, wow, this is some nice seed money for that. And I'm a person that always, you know, experiences, not things, you know? Mm -hmm. So I've kept a few mementos. Like I have, Al gave me his straight edge jacket uh, two months after we met. Yeah. And I saved, I had the presence of mind to save that, you know, so I have that and and some, you know, my minor threat records and a couple pins and maybe original SSD t-shirt and a bad brains t-shirt and there's some stuff that like is sentimental, but like flyers and, and stuff like that. Like, I, I don't, I don't really care about, know, you know, there might be some more road trips in the future. Here. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I, I've gotten rid of a lot of stuff. If you follow my Instagram, like I had a test pressing, Ian had given me, they had stayed at my house when they played up here in 83 and he had given me an out of step test pressing and I had to get it away test pressing. And I had a kid, no, my kids don't like punk rock. My students, you know, they're, they like world music and hip hop. And so, but I had this one kid in like 1999, 2000, who was really into hardcore and he knew his shit really well. And he wasn't even my student, but he used to come on my field trips and hang out in my room and stuff. He was a really nice kid. <laughs> uh, really really great family. You know, his parents were, you know, I still keep in touch with his parents. When he graduated, I gave him the test pressings, both of them for his graduation. Oh, wow. Present. <laughs> yeah. In like 2001, never, never dreaming that they would be worth such huge, you know, money. No, years they were later. worth a lot then. Hold on. They were worth a lot then. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. So, you know, flash forward to like, you know, three years ago, and uh, one day he called me, he said, you know, we're having, a, my wife and I are having a baby. 
And I think it's time to get rid of these. And if you help me sell them, I'll give you half. Oh, that's nice. You know? Yeah. Which was really cool. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool, you know? And I was like, I'll sell those in 15 minutes, which of course I did, you know? And then he, and then he gave me half, which I think I did another field trip to, you know, <laughs> use it as to, to New York. Yeah. So. Dave, did you really know cool. about this field trip thing? This is really good research. Yeah. Question. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, I feel like you guys must wish that there's like, there was a box of like the kids will have their say that you could just like sell one at a time because I mean those are impossible to find. Yeah. So so one time we had a really bad windstorm here. This is maybe like four years ago. And I sent Al up in the attic to check and he came down and he found we had a bunch of not a five kids will have their say, a bunch of uh get it aways, some fly some flyers. And uh yeah, I sold them. I sold them all. I, I feel like <laughs> it's a I feel like it's a running joke that Al keeps saying that the albums are getting reissued because I don't think that I'm like waiting for that to happen. I don't think it's ever going to happen. Yeah, no, it, it's it's definitely going to happen. You know, because Al, Al, one thing about Al, he he's absolutely zero bullshit. So if he says something, it will happen. And so it's just you know he's in tremendous pain every single day of his life, and so things move a little slower for Al than you know than the average person. So I mean, you know, he got get it away up on Spotify, like that's pretty cool on streaming services. You know, like I don't think people thought that was going to happen, you know, but he did it. And so, yeah, no, it will happen. If he says it's going to happen, it'll happen. So he just likes to do everything right. You know, he doesn't have, he doesn't have to ask anything. They're all losing money right now because it's like, you know, it's getting bootlegged everywhere. You know, it's, it's definitely like now is the time to kind of, you know, get that. I mean, yeah, it sounds, it sounds like an engineer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He just, you know, he doesn't succumb to other people's, you know, whatever he'll do it when he's, you know, when he's ready and, and it'll happen. But I think it will absolutely happen you know he was he talked to a couple of different record labels you know about it happened um you know he couldn't come to an agree an agreement with anybody so he just decided that he's going to do it himself you know so what's what's some of i feel like kids are really smart what are some of the best scams kids have pulled to get out of school over the years at least for a day. Hmm. You know, sometimes my kids do things where like, you know, one time a girl came in my room and she, uh, I think she was on, you know, she's like, I skipped your class yesterday or whatever. I skipped all day yesterday because my friend and I drove to New York to see Jimmy Kimmel. And I was like, good for you. you <laughs> know? Your life. Yeah, you know? I was like, oh, hell yeah. You know, that's, that's awesome. I also had a kid and she was an AP kid, you know, super smart, followed the letter the law and she used to scam pit tickets for like big shows at Boston Garden. She would like use her computer or whatever so that, you know, she'd have like a regular ticket, but she'd turn it into a ticket to go down and be in the, the pit in the front. Again, I applauded her for that. So yeah, my kids, I don't know how many of them are, you know, usually when my kids are out for something, it's a real story. You know, like I had a kid today, just today, say to me, miss, I'm not going to be able to hand that paper in on time because we're still remote right now. We go back to hybrid on Monday, but we're still remote now. He goes, miss, I couldn't hand that paper in because my Wi-Fi went out for three days. And the only way I could get Wi-Fi was to use my neighbors, but he wouldn't let me in his house because of COVID. So I was doing it on his step, but then it started raining, you know? Like, <laughs> oh, you got to give him and, a pass for that. I, <laughs> oh, 
Oh, hell yes. (laughs) Oh, hell yes. Yeah. You know, so most of the time when my kids are coming up with a a story, it's usually true. Had a kid one time when I think it was last year, a girl, you know, she left my class to go to the bath and never came, didn't, didn't come back until like right before the bell, the bell was going to ring. So I locked her out of the classroom because she wanted another kid to bring her stuff out to her. So she wouldn't have faced me because she knew I was going to be going to be angry. But I, <laughs> but, but I was like, I may, I locked her out. So she had to like, wait till I came out and got her because she couldn't leave without her, her pocketbook and her coat and stuff. And then she was like, why is it the nurse? And I was here and I was like, no, I called the nurse. You know, I didn't call, but I, I knew I could tell she was lying, you know, and she was like, and then after that, like she, we became so close, you know, we, we, you know, cause she liked the fact that I was authentic with her and, you know, no bullshit. And I didn't write her up or anything about it you know every, every once I said hey listen you need to go take a walk take a lap or whatever just let me know and go do it because I would rather have you do that and then come back and do your work and I never had a bit of trouble from her ever again after that I used to I had a orthodontist who's across the street from my middle school so like you get two now and laters and my entire braces would come off with, with like two bites oh God. So and then and then the nurse would come and sign me out and then I would just go home <laughs> after they fixed my braces. It worked three times. When I was in school, they used to hold the pack of nowelators in their cuffs on like the bell bottom. Just by sticking them because they were so sticky. <laughs> no, the whole pack. Like That's you gross. take the pack, you buy a pack, and you hang it in your cuff. They won't oh, okay. open. If it was open, it was like corduroy. That would be gross. <laughs> Nobody said that. <laughs> that was I ima- that's what I imagine. I know it's not necessarily in the spirit of the podcast, but uh but I have to ask some Flippy the Beagle questions. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> is Flippy more your dog or Al's dog? You know, Flippy is the most unique dog that I ever know because I had four dogs in my life and Al had a dog. I have never had a dog that loves two people equally. You know, all my all my dogs growing up loved my mother, you know, like they just wanted to be with my mother, you know? And and, but Flippy the Beagle, I swear to God, he loves both of us equally. You and we we talk about it all the time that he's just such well, a sweet dog. Why would he let, let 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 him drive away without you? <laughs> oh yeah, right. I know he was probably saying, "Mommy's not in the car." <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> is he is is he getting royalties for the special picks that Al made? I uh, yes, he should. He should absolutely. He's <laughs> he's a very expensive little beagle. In fact, we have to take him for his senior wellness check on uh, like April. 9th. And I know that's going to cost us probably 500, you know, because they're going to be like, well, he needs to have a tooth pulled or he needs this and that. But, you know, we never had children. So Flippy the Beagle is the kid we never had. (laughs) And uh, we love this dog so much. And our entire existence revolves around his happiness. So, you know, I wish he would live forever because sometimes I just look at him and I think, you know, you're not going to be here forever. And then I just fall my eyes out. Yeah, (laughs) that's the worst part. I, I I think there should be a limited pressing of Flippy the Beagle cover. Okay. Kids will have to say. <laughs> I will uh, I'll put that. I'll put that out there. Yeah, we just love that dog. You know, he is the sweetest dog you ever would want to meet. He really has the nicest personality. Is he loud? He's loud. Is he a howler? He's yeah. He's a very much a howler. You know, protecting us from the UPS man <laughs> and other big trucks, big trucks coming down the street. So, so that's Al's job, right? When I'm doing podcasts, he's got to keep the dog quiet. So he's always like, Ah, oh, Jesus Christ! How long is this going to last? You know, <laughs> because. I'm like, well, you know, I'm, I'm down here working, you know, teaching remotely. I teach college. I teach high school. Like I'm busting my butt, you know, all you got to do is keep the dog quiet. You know, I think you get the better end of the deal. <laughs> so 
Are you, um, based on the success of the book, I mean, it seems like everyone I know has read it. You know, I've seen so many people I know doing the pictures uh, that you post, <laughs> you know, yeah. just people holding the books. Are you thinking about doing a follow-up? Yeah, you know, like, I, you know, I'm absolutely shocked that the, you know, there's nobody more surprised at the success of this book than me, you know? I figured that it, you know, be a couple of relatives and friends and diehard punk rockers, you know? But I think the pandemic helped it a lot. And so that's, you know, there's a little silver lining in, in the pandemic that people are reading more and stuff. But I did, we did a photo essay book with Phil and Flash, Al and I, and uh, Jamie and Chris contributed, uh, Chris the drummer and Jamie the bass player. So we've got that coming out. And then my original book, the original book that I wrote was How Punk Rock Made Me a Better Teacher. And the beginning of it was my punk rock experience. And then I talked about how I put, you know, I utilized punk rock in my teaching practice. And I got a really high powered New York agent right away. And he blew me up so much. He was like, we're going to put this out to bid, you know? And I was like, oh God, I'm retiring. This is going to be great. You know? <laughs> but what happened was people either liked the punk rock story or, or the teacher story, but they didn't like it together. So I, I just pulled off the punk stuff because it was finite and easier. And, and I thought I could get a, I thought I could get a publisher quicker. And um, so you're saying the, the agent, your agent basically said the idea for our podcast. Yeah, I was gonna say, that doesn't fare well for our <laughs> podcast concept, does it? <laughs> Maybe, maybe we should have talked to him first. I, I want Nancy to be our agent. You know, I, maybe if I had a, you know another agent, or maybe if I waited two years, or like you know something something might have changed. Like you, you know, who the hell knows? So people, you know, so many books were rejected before they, you know, that they were picked, and then you know who knows. But I do have the teacher book like ready to go. You know, it's ready to go. So after this one came out, I I, I said to I loved working with Ian Zillion Points. Man, that guy is sharp and and easy to work with and you know it's just just so great and and trustworthy and honest you know I really like working with him and so I said to him I said would you consider doing my teacher book and he said well I have a couple of things in the hopper right now but if you if you want to wait till 2022 yeah you know so maybe it'll happen well, I, I could tell you Frank McCourt's book about being an Irish immigrant teaching it's not very good yeah <laughs> I don't know if you read it. That's because he left out the best part. What's that? You're you being in his class when he got punched in the nose. <laughs> I just feel like I, I feel like there is a market for that. As you know, as punks get older, and you know, you see all the different ways that people can grow up and what adulthood looks like, and and how much you learn from what you learned in the scene. I, I really do think that that's a that's an interesting topic, and I'm not just saying that because that's what we're doing for this podcast. But you know, it's it's for me. I think you know people come at it from a very different place when they've been part of that scene in that community. And it really does, I feel like it emboldens you with a certain amount of, you know, fuck it, I'll figure it out kind of, you know, like that approach as opposed to like, you know, oh, I need to do this. And if I, if I don't have this degree, I can't do this. Or if I didn't, you know, I don't really know what I'm doing. So I'm afraid to do it. I feel like that's kind of like, you know, we had a guest, uh, we had a guest who talked about it and said, you know, basically every punk rocker is like their own entrepreneur. They, they're setting up merch tables, they're setting up shows, they're doing all these things that they don't know how to do that until they do it. And of course, you're going to go to a bunch of horribly run shows or you're going to buy, you know, a t-shirt that you wash and in, in the, you know, they didn't set the ink. So it all <laughs> washes off. So, you know, that happens, but it's still like that learning process that I think makes more capable, confident adults. And that's a fascinating story. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm with you hundred percent on that. Like, you know, that whole do it yourself work ethic, you know, that powers every day because I teach in a low income school, you know, and we don't have a lot of resources. So if I want to take my kids on field trips or I want more books or I want, you know, different things for my 
students. I have to, you know, raise the money and get it myself. And so punk rock definitely helps with that. You know, um, it helps me connect with the with, you know, my students and it helps me like create assignments that my students can look at, you know, complicated politics and, and societal pressures and, and then come up with the right answer, you know, and be independent learners. And that's all punk rock, too, as well as standing up against authority when I think that somebody is um, messing with my students, you know, and, and a story that I, story I tell in that book is, you know, I had a student who ended up on the front page of the New York Post because after the Boston marathon bombing. And this kid was a sophomore in high school when that happened. And, you know, New York Post, you know, put bag men, you know, like and that they were looking for him. And this kid had his life threatened online. People were coming to his house. Like, you know, it was awful. And I was like, I was furious. And I didn't I, I didn't have the kid and I didn't know him. But I made sure that I found him the most high powered Boston attorney. And we sued the fuck out of the New York Post. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> so, you know, they deserved it. Yes, they most certainly did. They most certainly did. And so he got an undisclosed amount. But um, yeah, he's definitely set. So don't mess around with my students because you will have me to deal with. Some of this tenacity sounds like it comes from your law background too, right? Maybe, maybe, yes. (laughs) Marine dad, law background. Yeah. and Look out, look out school, look out parents. (laughs) Yeah, you know, um, you just don't do that to somebody. Not to, you know, not to a young kid like that. It was just not right. So they had to pay. <laughs> have you had any, so to that end, as far as the, the punk rock question authority, have you had any issues as a teacher where you've had, you know, you've been issued edicts or there's been rules that have been put forth that you're just like, I can't do that. I can't follow that. Yeah, pretty much on a daily basis. <laughs> <laughs> I get in trouble a lot. I'm very outspoken. And I also have one of those kind of faces that if, if, if you're in a meeting and someone's talking about something and I don't agree with it, you can see it on my face <laughs> really, really well. When when I get angry, I think I'm a little scary. So yeah, I've, I've gotten in trouble quite a bit for things like that. My friend Paul Chernick asked me to ask this. So what's the most interesting or unusual book you've added to your syllabus over the last few years? Like, did you ever sneak something in? Yeah, yeah. You know, we did this book called Bless Me Ultima that is it's super mystical and you know about an immigrant family um, and it is it's weird but it's powerful at the same time and I didn't know how my kids would like it or not, you know, but it's coming of age novel. And there's a woman in his life who is like, they think they, they say she's a witch. Uh, she's Ultima or Ultima, I guess, however, you know, depending upon how you, um, and it's, you know, it's a huge part of the Chicano literary canon and my kids love it. And it's weird and mystical. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff about medicinal herbs and a golden carp as a god. And, you you know, there's a lot of pushback between the old and the new and and um, Catholicism and mysticism and all, you know, all this stuff and indigenous cultural ways. And it's it's super, super powerful. And and so, yeah, that's probably the, the weirdest book that I do that and kids really like it. <laughs> so it's cool. Does your school have one PTA or more than one PTA? We, we have one PTA, but, you know, my parents, the parents of my students, you know, a lot of them work many hours. They don't speak the language. So, you know, building a strong PTA is always difficult. Charlie, didn't you have a second PTA? <laughs> I did. I had a, awesome. a renegade. <laughs> we, were, we, we were renegade, renegade PTA. PTA. <laughs> the shadow PTA? 
Yes. Uh, they tried they tried to ban us. <laughs> the principal tried to ban us to shut us down, but I went to the DOE legal department and cited NAACP versus the state of Alabama and uh, awesome. <laughs> So it's a great story. I, but I tell you this for you people out there, principal does not have, have to let you meet. Oh, they school. can make you go off site? So we Yeah, yeah, we were we used to meet in the school, then the principal got mad and said you're going to shut us down and make us a committee of the PTA and I said you have no right to do that. But then she said, so she threw us out of the school. But I just, uh, we just met at the church on the other side of the block. So, <laughs> all right. So, so Nancy, I'm fascinated. So, I have to ask a couple of questions about this too. The Benjamin Franklin connection. Oh. So, being an ancestor, having Benjamin Franklin as an ancestor, but living in Boston, have you ever met anyone who has like you know Sam Adams or John Adams as a as an ancestor, and you kind of like have to argue about whether the Philly or Boston founding fathers are well, better? No, wait, wait, Ben Franklin is Ben. Well, is, wait, he's from, Boston, I he was from Philly. Boston. Now he moved there. He's from Boston. He's like Nancy in reverse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that is true. I belong to the Daughters of the American Revolution. And so, you know, I go to the meetings and that's probably as close as I get to meeting anybody like, you know, with ancestors that far back. So there, there's, there's never been any issues. So that, you know, that's, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I recently, um, my students just recently read a book by Adriana Mather, who is descended from Cotton Mather, who was, you know, responsible for the much of what went on in Salem. And she wrote a book about a girl who goes to high school with that name in Salem. And it's also very uh, witchy and fun. And my kids loved it. And so I reached out to her and she, she came on our Zoom and spoke to the kids about, you know, how, how she came up with the idea for the book and the writing process and it, you know, it was really powerful, but yeah, I probably didn't answer your question there, but no, I, no one's ever, you know, given, given me, I didn't find out about it till I was like 41 years oh, old. Wow. It was something my grand, it was something my grandmother always said. I wish I knew when it, you know, had some, some street cred in the schoolyard, you know, when I was growing up, <laughs> but um, with teachers and stuff, I think it would have, you know, I think teachers would have maybe. Well, I feel like you could also use that as an intimidation factor. Right, Cause there's right. all those theories that he was a serial killer. Oh, <laughs> They had. They found all those. Bo- I thought. I thought. I, I thought I was the one who. Found no, they the found all those. They found all no those reason. bones in his basement. Oh, that's right. You mean in 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 London? Yeah. In yeah. London. Yes, I but do know that about. was because of medical stuff, right? As far as I, I know. I think it was like yeah, it was that was just grave robbing. Yeah. It was like yeah. Yeah, everyone was grave robbing back then. Let's just say everyone was grave robbing. Back then. <laughs> yeah. You know anything about Ben Franklin's uh, junto? No. No. He had a club, like you know, called the junto. Of like oh uh, yeah, he did. Ha- yeah, he did have a club, and and uh, you know they used to to challenge each other to uh, be better people too, you know? And I think I wrote an article about that one time because I think those kind of clubs are kind of neat. <laughs> Maybe when I retire and move back to Philly, I will have another one. I think you should be an agent. You can, you can bring it back. You know, you may be able to recharter it. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Start it back up. Yeah. Cool. I have a little bit more serious questions uh, just about your, you know, you've, you've been teaching for a long time. What do you think needs to be different about how writing is taught in the next decade? They got to get rid of those small moments. <laughs> Charlie hates small moments. I don't even know what that is. Good. They're like in the elementary school, like this Columbia's Teachers College, they're like, write a small moment, write a small moment, oh, write a small moment. I've never even heard of that. Yeah. Writing about like this. I think Nancy already said she's, she's in favor of whole books, not, <laughs> right? Yeah. 
not passages. I'm for cultural literacy. One thing that I, I learned from remote learning was, you know, I was still very old school when we when the school shut down and we went to remote. And I used to have my kids still write out essays on paper and, you know, they, they could do it on their Chromebook and then print it out and hand it in, you know. But I very quickly had to pivot to Google Classroom. And with Google Classroom, when a kid is writing something, you as the teacher can go on and see it as they're writing. To me, this has become one of the most powerful tools for improving writing because, you know, I'll, I'll highlight something and I'll say to the student, you know, okay, now read this out loud. What are you trying to say here? You know, and as a result, I would say this year I have had the most spectacular writing from my students way better than I ever had before. And it's because of the technology, the using, you know, the use of Google Classroom. So, you know, when we go back, that's something I definitely want to continue because looking at a paper as a kid is writing it, you know, like, and, and it, I, if I was a kid, it would like freak me out to have my teacher. Like sometimes I'll just, I'll just go creep on and I'll like start correcting things, you know? <laughs> you gotta, you gotta make it so that it's a stealth yeah. mode, right? <laughs> and, they're, and they're like, bro, you know? And I'm like, okay, just, you just needed to capitalize that or you're freaking me out if you don't capitalize, you know? So they have really, really gotten good at writing. And so that, um, you know, that's that's one thing. And then the other thing is that that's super important is you've got to meet students where they live, right? You, you know, if, if kids are your business, you got to know your business. And so a couple of years ago, I had a kid named Jordan, a soft, who came into my class fully decked out as Daryl Dixon, okay, from The Walking Dead. And this kid, thought he was Daryl Dixon. You know, he really is a city kid, but he really, he just loved The Walking Dead. And he kept asking me, you know, bro, you watch Walking Dead? And I was like, no, I don't like blood or guts or gore. And so I could engage that kid in class. But if I gave him anything to do at home, reading or writing at home, he wouldn't do it. So his, around Thanksgiving, his grades started to tank. And I said to him, you know, Jordan, what do I need to do to get you to do your work? And he said, if you watch The Walking Dead, I'll do my work. And so, you know, some people tell you, don't bargain with your students. You know, but I thought it was cool that he was comfortable enough with our relationship that he issued the challenge. So I said, I'll take you up on it. So it was Thanksgiving and it, and it took me about five tries to get through the first episode because it's so crazy. But by um, the end of Christmas break, I had watched all six seasons that were available. And so we, I would come I would come to school the next day, you know, on, on, on you know, it, it airs on Sunday nights. And I'd come to school. Here's Whoopi the Beagle. Um, I'd come to school on um, uh, Monday mornings. And, you know, this was, a you know, what they would call a lower level. I don't believe in, in names like that for kids, but, you know, it wasn't an AP class. Let's just say that, you know, and, and the kids would want to talk about the show and they would go really deep. And I was like, wow, if only I could get them to talk about, you know, this kind of stuff. And Jordan had said to me, he's like, it's got all that shit you like in it, Burrell, you know, uh, symbolism and character development and, you know, imagery and stuff, you know, and it did, it did. And so he was like, we should have a class on The Walking Dead. And I was like, you know what? We should. And so I went to my director, who was a fan, was a fan of the show. And she said, if I was willing to make the curriculum, that we could have a Walking Dead class. And so I worked on it all summer with Jordan <laughs> and my and my 15-year-old nephew. And it's great because I use it as a platform for kids to learn everything from psychology to sociology to business.
business to ethics to international relations. And the kids love it. You know, I taught two sections. I'm teaching two sections of it this year, you know, 28 kids in each one, you know. So that's going to help improve kids' writing, you know. If they're writing about, if you're using something like The Walking Dead, a show that they really like, as a platform to to teach them things like, you know, international relations and, and asking them to write about it. And they write every week they have to write, you know, so, and they're getting better at it. So that would be my second part answer. Yeah, I, I want to take that. That's class. very cool. Yeah. <laughs> and here's my thing. Like, I have been trying so hard to get Norman Reedus to, to Zoom with my class. Now, he is a punk. He, you see him. I know. He's on our I list. Saw, I met him at He's a, a, a Slater King show. Him. He's on your list. <laughs> Listen, if you ever could get him, like, he has a minor threat. Like, I reached out to him. I was like, I will introduce you to Ian if you just Zoom with my kids for 15 minutes, you know? <laughs> You're training minor threat porch photos for class. Uh, exactly. That's <laughs> good. You know, my legend will live on. It's easier than selling the records. Yeah, <laughs> my legend would live on if I, if I could ever, ever do that. Like I've had walkers. There have been, I think it was Johnny Kardashian. I don't know if you know him or not, but he got me a walker to come on, you know, like a guy that had been in like, I think it was in like 11 episodes as a zombie, you know, and he came on and talked to my kid. They Ooh. loved it. You know who we might be able to talk to? We interviewed Chris Sherry, the Descendants artist. He's friends with a lot of the Walking Dead people. Yeah. Listen, but we should hook you guys up. I think I think you might be able to help each other with this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he, he does those he does those remote. Yeah, he Chris is a teacher too. That's right. Chris is a drama teacher. But he said he likes having a remote. Yeah. Yes. I mean, it would just it'd be so easy. You know, we could just do it over Zoom. It would take 15 minutes of his time. And here's the thing: I know if he knew about it, he would do it because he just seems like that kind of guy. You know, it's just a matter of getting it in front exactly, of him. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and I've had really good luck at like reaching out to people and getting them to Jake Phelps, who you know was a Boston crew guy. You know, my kids that skateboard, I was like, you know, one time I saw him skateboarding and they're like, oh, you know anything about skateboarding? I said, well, you know, my friend Jake Phelps is editor of Thrasher Magazine. And they're like, shut up, Burrell. I don't believe you. <laughs> and I was like, I'll call him right now on the phone. And they're like, really? Can you get us free stuff? And I called Jake and he sent them huge boxes of merchandise stuff for them. And they were like thrilled. So like, hook it up. This is our mission. Yeah, we're going to work on this. And then we're going to help you with this. You know, you know it's even better than you'll, then you'll owe us. And we know yes. we, you'll even do better for us. <laughs> I, would, I mean, it would be spectacular. I've got, I've got three years or three or four years to retirement, depending upon when I okay. tap out. If you guys can pull that off in the next three years, I would be eternally grateful and do anything for you. And that that's another punk thing. You know, you guys know, you know. Joe said he could do it in three weeks. Really Whatever. Yeah. Uh, sure, Charlie. <laughs> Put yeah. the words in my mouth. It's fine. <laughs> It'd be so cool. We'd be happy to help. Yeah, let's see what we can do. Awesome. I think, do you think a lot of punks go into teaching because you can kind of like see, see you're changing the world with your bare hands? And, and do you feel like that's why you wanted to do it? Or did you have any, obviously you wanted to be a teacher when you were a kid too, but did you, do you feel like there's something the way you have control? You know, there's definitely something you guys, you know, and I don't know if you're, if you, you know, you're figuring it out because so many teachers have reached out to me, you know, even before the book came out and after the book came out. And, and so what I want to do is as soon as it's 
safe again. I want to have a big hardcore and punk teacher conference in Boston. You know, like I want to run a place, like do a big thing because there are just so many of us out there. And I, you know, I really can't tell you the reason. I think people become teachers sometimes for two reasons, because they were inspired by a really good teacher or they had terrible teachers like I did in my high school years. And, you know, they become the anti-teacher and they want to, they want to write that wrong, you know? And so I think that that's, you know, maybe that's a reason why, you know, if, if a punk had a bad teacher and and they just think, well, I can, I can fix that. And I, if, when I'm a teacher, I won't let that happen. So that might mm-hmm. be it. Well, Nancy, I had a great teacher that a great English teacher that let me into the book, to the book closet and said, we can't teach any of these books. So take whatever you want. And nice. she got, you know, she was an old punk rocker too. So she was, you know, she got me into some like, you know, she was in the punk rock and new wave. So she would get me into like, you know, she gave me a record from Joe King Carrasco and the crowns and like all this weird, like, you know, like power pop punk rock stuff. But she was like a huge Ramones fan. It was, I mean, that's that awesome. definitely inspired me to want to be a teacher. Yeah. Working in education for like 14 years. So I, I'm totally down to help you with that conference. Yeah. And, let's and I do think it. We, we could also do like a live, uh, you know, we could proctor a panel or something, you know, and make it silly. Yeah. No, that's, <laughs> that's, that's legit what I want to do. Like, you know, like, you know, when you, you know, when you go to these conferences and you can pick what you want to go to, there, there'll be offer, you know, where you, you can talk about this and you can talk about that. And yeah. How to beat the system, you know, how to, how to fight authority. You know? <laughs> Straight edge gym teachers. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right? All of it. All of it. I love it. <laughs> Okay, I want to add with something practical. So, you know, knowing all you know now, and if you can go back and do things differently in your first three years, like what advice would you give to someone just coming into teaching? You know, I always tell, because uh, I teach people who want to be teachers. And so I, I usually tell them, like, if you can just get past your first year, if you can just stay in your first year and make it through, it gets easier. Not a whole lot easier, but a little bit easier. Also, you absolutely positively need a mentor. I never had a mentor, but I was lucky. I In my school, I told you we had good school culture. So there were a couple of teachers who took me under their wing and helped me. So I would say, you know, you absolutely, you know, must have a mentor to just to talk about and cry to and scream to and yell to and to teach you the ins and outs and the hierarchy, the the ones that that no one knows about and things like that. So I think that that's really important. And, you know, I would tell everyone to join the union, that a strong union will benefit everybody, the students, the teachers. And that's one thing that, that sometimes bothers me about the teaching business after coming from like the corporate world for so long, you know, you are always united with one cause, with one goal in when you're working at a law firm or for a corporation. And I always thought teaching was the same way. But sometimes there's adversarial relationships between superintendents and teachers. And I'd like to see that be different. You know, I would like happy teachers are healthy and productive teachers. And so everybody benefits. And so I'd like to see a little more of that too. So I would encourage people to, you know, I always tell my mentees, because I'm a mentor teacher, I always tell them, you know, you keep pretty quiet your first three, three years or you don't get the tenure, you know, you don't get the professional status. So, but then after that, definitely, you know, be, be an activist and be a social activist for your kids, most importantly, too, because if you're not 
sometimes if they don't always have the voice and you do. So almost every teacher I know is a social activist too, sort of comes with the territory, especially if you teach in a school like mine. Plug your book. <laughs> All right. Well, I, like how, how should I plug it? I think you guys like, you know, you can do that. You can say Nancy wrote this book and it's available at bazillionpoints.com and Amazon. Okay. We'll do that. That'd is there be- a better place to buy it from that you get more money in the public? I mean, is it like to get it from Brazilian points rather than from Amazon or is it not? I would always say, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't give any money to Bezos if I did. I would say definitely. Yeah. Bazillionpoints.com. And um, some of the younger people that have bought my book, you know, have said, well, I have to get it at Amazon because it's my parents' account, you know? And I'm like, that's it. Yeah. You know, do what you need to do. Cause I've been called out because it's sold on Amazon. You know, some people don't think it should be sold on Amazon, but that's not my decision. You know, that's bazillion, bazillion. That's like the old, like, oh, you shouldn't be sold at Tower Records or whatever. You know, it's like, it's like the more people that experience it, the better. And if they, you know, I feel like at that point, if they have, if their only choice is to buy it through Amazon and and they get a chance to read it and, and, you know, understand, uh, you know, and learn something from it, then that's what's important. Yeah. I feel that. I feel that way too. Amazon is the way your book spreads. Like everybody I've ever talked to in self-publishing, myself included from my books is it's the fact of the matter is Amazon's who gets your book discovered now. The suggestions. Yeah. Reviews matter so much. It's the only place you could find the reviews. Like it, you know, in the top of the top three pages of reviews, we search for book reviews, it's Amazon. So, well, it's even just their their suggestion algorithm is, is really where you sell a lot of books. Wow. It's kind of fucked up. Wow, that's wild. Yeah. I mean, I've, I, I, I've, of the, the tens of thousands I've sold, that's definitely been a lot of them. Wow, that's great. I didn't even really know too much about that. But then one of my friends from Germany told me, she's like, you're the number one punk release on Amazon. I was like, what? You know, and I was number one punk release on Amazon for like six. 16 weeks. So that was going to, so, wow. yeah. And so that was kind of cool, you know, and I, and I, I was, you know, absolutely thrilled with that, you know, even though it is Bezos. <laughs> I was like, this is cool, you know? So, well, and I we go were back number and, six music podcast in Malaysia for some reason. Oh, that's because, <laughs> that's because what one person listened to. This <laughs> I get a lot of people from Malaysia uh, writing me on the uh, SSD because I run that. Really? And, yeah. Come to Malaysia. I heard there's some good Malaysian like uh, grindcore bands, actually. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Yeah. That's it, kids. The gig is up. The cops are here, and your mom is going jails, hospitals, and all your friends' houses wondering where you've been. Tune in next week for another fascinating, mesmerizing, and absolutely unmissable episode. And be sure to get on the list and follow the boys on social media at Killed by Desk. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon. And if you enjoyed this conversation, there's tons more where this came from. For only $5 a month, you can get full episodes with each of our guests for a total of five episodes per month. Want to help us out with some gas money and to get us to the next show? We have merch and more at killedbydesk.com. 